Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today I'm speaking with Xiaoping Feng about his new book, China and the Cholera Pandemic, Restructuring Society Under Mao. Xiaoping Feng is Assistant Professor of History at the School of Humanities of the Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. His research interests focus on the history of medicine, health, and disease in 20th century China and the socio-political history of Mao's China after 1949. He is also the author of Barefoot Doctors and Western Medicine in China, published by University of Rochester Press in 2012. And his articles have appeared in China Quarterly and Modern Asian Studies. Xiaoping Feng, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. Nice to meet you. And likewise, I'm really excited to speak with you. As I've told you, I read your book, Barefoot Doctors, and Western Medicine in China, and I, I found it really very interesting, and, and so was this book. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about yourself first, because I am speaking to you while you are in Singapore, and I am in the U.S. Okay. Um, I was born and grew up uh, in Zhejiang province, uh, southeast uh, coast of China. And after I got my MA degree from Nanjing University, I came to National University Singapore, National University of Singapore, and I pursued my PhD in history there. And later, I went to UK, Australia. And last year, I visited the United States and came back to um, come back to Singapore. And I'm teaching and working here, and I stay with my family here. That's my general background. I see. And so that's interesting because I think you said you uh, came from Zhejiang province, and I believe that's an area that figures in this book. Yes. So uh, I'm wondering, uh, your new book, China and the Cholera Pandemic, it seems very timely indeed. But I imagine that when you started researching it, you weren't thinking it would be published in the midst of the greatest pandemic in the last 100 years. So what interested you uh, about this cholera pandemic in China in the 1960s? Oh, yes, I, I, have, I have never imagined that would, uh, I would have the direct personal experience of, this, of, the, of the pandemic when I, I wrote the, the book on the cholera pandemic over the uh, past years. I started uh, working on this uh, project um, in 2011. 2011, but uh, this topic come to my mind uh, quite earlier. Uh, Just now I mentioned I was born uh, and grew up in in Zhejiang. In our childhood, we have heard of a name, the scary name or scary term called the number two disease. Number two disease. Number two disease referred to the cholera pandemic in Mao's China. It's a scary disease. Um, uh, in 19, uh, in 12, 2003, I started working on my uh, PhD dissertation about the barefoot doctors. So when I uh, did the field work about the barefoot doctors, I went to the uh, archives. So I, I found many archive documents, documents concerning the, the cholera in 1960s. Uh, some some documents, but after I finished then after I finished uh, revising my dissertation into a book, so I started working on on the cholera pandemic. So that was um, around ten years ago. So a long time in the making, and the cholera pandemic that you write about actually started in a place called Guangdong Province. Yes, in June nineteen sixty one, uh, but you chose to focus focus on the epidemic in Wenzhou Prefecture, hmm. and that started about a year later. So what was it about this particular area that made you 
decide to focus on it? Well, uh, I sent my study on Wenzhou Prefecture simply because um, uh, the instant rates of the cholera uh, in Wenzhou Prefecture, Zhejiang Province, was the highest in the coast areas of China in early 1960s. And uh, uh, Wenzhou happened, happens to be a part of the Zhejiang province where I'm from. And it is relatively easy for me to conduct the, the field work, including the uh, visiting the archives, uh, interviewing the uh, local villages. So the, the two reasons, the one is the, uh, the instance, instance of the instance rate of the cholera in Wenzhou mm. prefecture was the highest in the southeast coast areas of China. And second, um, I happen to come from Zhejiang province and Wenzhou is part of Zhejiang province. It is easy to, to conduct the, the field work. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. Maybe part of it has to do with that was you, you had grown up with this knowledge of the number two disease. And we can talk about that later, why it's called yeah, okay. number two disease. Um, you, you write in the introduction that there are three main areas that you focus on, a disease and mobility, a social division and borders, and data and social structure. So I'd like to talk about all of those. But just in terms of why the incidence rate was highest in this coastal area, uh, you talk about the sedentary rural society versus the mobile coastal society. Could you explain what that difference is and why it was? Oh, yes. Um, in my book, I talk about the two types of the population mobilities in Mao's China, particularly during the early 1960s. Uh, we usually describe the uh, population mobility in Mao's China as the static society because of the, because of the social structures com- composing of the, the household, household registration system in the the household registration system and the work unit systems. But uh, uh, actually, uh, there was a transitional period from the transitional period uh, from the uh, chaotic population mobility to the static population mobility uh, from the late 1950s to early 1960s. As we know, uh, the Chinese government launched the Great Leap Forward and organized the People's Communal System in 1958. So around these two radical social political experiments, uh, the population mobility was quite chaotic. I mean, it was not highly coordinated and supervised by the government. But um, after the end of the uh, Great leap forward and, and the uh, great farming around the 1961 and 1962, the government restructured the social political system. So the population mobility uh, trans, um, shifted from the chaotic mobility to the uh, relatively sedentary mobility. I mean, chaotic to the Sedentary. I mean, the population mobility was highly uh, monitored and supervised by the uh, by the government and the party. So that's the the first concept: uh, the sedentary the society. That's the once. That's the one point. On the other hand, uh, I also pro- uh, proposed the, the term the uh, mobile uh, coastal front society because. In, uh, in early 19, in early 1960s, when the Chinese government and the party reorganized, uh, or restructured social political system, the whole system become the static. There were a minimum of three uh, mobile uh, groups in the coast areas of China, such as the uh, People's Liberation Armies. And the visitors, overseas visitors, such as the visitors from, from Southeast Asia, like Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, and the visitor from Hong Kong. And, and then the, the, the third mobile uh, group, uh, 
was the, the fisherman from Guangdong province. So the three noble groups, the People's Liberation Armies, the overseas visitors, and the, the fishermen from Guangdong or Fujian province. So they, uh, this, the mobility of these people, uh, form, uh, form the, uh, uh, mobile coast front society. And as you write that, this very mobility allowed this to be an area where the, the epidemic could spread more rapidly. But at the same time, it didn't spread uh, evenly across all sectors of society. Yes. Uh, for instance, uh, the People's Liberation Army, they were uh, much better off yes. than some of the villagers. Yeah, because of the, yes, in my book, I analyzed the, uh, the instance rates between, instant rates of the, uh, People's Liberation Army soldiers and the civilians in the same areas. I mean, in the I mean, in the southeast coast area of China, uh, for the People's Liberation Armies, uh, they had the the much better uh, the food supply and the Medicare uh, medical care the uh, the schemes and the other other guarantee other supports. So the instance rates among the uh, among the uh, people's liberation soldiers uh, was the was the lowest compared with other social groups. But for the for the peasants, for the peasants, they just survived the great farming, and uh, the whole system was was restructured, and they have to support support the uh, so called the, the anti um, reclaim uh, reclaim the mainland campaign. Launched by by the Chiang Kai Shek in 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 Taiwan, so there was the huge difference, uh, huge difference in terms of the uh, instant rates of the cholera in early 1960s. And as you write, there was also some interesting uh, changes in the way the cholera spread amongst uh, the different sexes, because women previously had been uh, more isolated. At home, and now women were liberated, which meant they were uh, actually mandated, I think, to go work in the fields in agriculture, and that exposed them to cholera. So women began uh, contracting this epidemic disease more than they had in previous cholera epidemics. Is that right? Oh uh, yes, yes. That that was a very significant uh, part of the the cholera uh, uh, pandemic in early 1960s. Uh, as you mentioned uh, just now, the women uh, usually, uh, Chinese women usually did not participate in agriculture uh, production in some parts of China, in some parts of China. So in, in South China, in some parts of the Southeast Coast China, at least in, in Wenzhou Prefecture, many, many women, many, many women uh, did not participate in agriculture productions before uh, 1949. But uh, after the 19, after the mid 1950s, uh, the government uh, launched the agriculture collectivization campaigns, and the women were were so called liberated by the by the government. And they were encouraged they were encouraged to participate in the in in the production. Particularly, they went to the rice paddy fields and they exposed, they exposed the water, contaminated water, and they suffered, they suffered the cholera pandemic. So the instant, instant rate of the cholera among the uh, Chinese women after 1949 was much higher than that in, uh, uh before 1949. Yeah, that's, that was, uh, that is the comparative, uh, comparative the conclusion. Yeah, so really interesting uh, epidemiology there. And because this book is not only about the cholera pandemic, but it's about the restructuring of society under Mao and how those two things work together. Could you just explain a little bit about the formal, the three systems that form the socio-political structure in Mao's China, that the household registration system and the work unit system and the people's commune system. Mm. Okay. Yes. Um. Uh, in um. In Mao's China from 1949 to 1978, uh, there were three uh crucial socio-political systems. Uh, the one is the 
householder registration system. The second day is the uh, work unit system. We call the Danwei system. And the third is um is a people's commune system. Um, regarding the uh, household registration system, it was uh, implemented since uh, it has been implemented since uh, 1958. And this system, this system uh, splits the Chinese population, the populations into two types of the populations. One referred to the agricultural populations, referred to uh, referred to uh, peasants uh, or people's commune members. And the other refer to the non-agricultural populations, generally refer to uh, urban residents. And in this uh, in this system, um, this system was described as the castle hierarchical uh, system based on the uh, identity of the populations. So because um, uh, agricultural population, I mean the the peasants. Uh, were abolished of the some the basic uh, basic um, social political welfare such as uh, education, uh, Medicare, and uh, and the mobility, the free mobility, the right or freedom of the mobility. But uh, the on the on on the contrast, uh, urban urban residents, the, those people affiliated the working units. Could enjoy a series of the social political welfares. So it was um, uh, described as the castle, castle-like uh, hierarchical uh, system based on the based on the identities of the population. And the work units, uh, the work 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 unit systems is um, uh, affiliated with the. With the urban population or the urban residents, it is uh, including the it it included the uh, government agencies, uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, the schools like the university, uh, middle schools or primary schools, and uh, other 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 governments uh, other government agencies. So. That's uh, that was the important uh, social political system implement, implemented in Mao's China, and the third is the people's commune system. I think the the audience might be uh, more familiar with the people's commune system uh, than the two previous uh, the systems, the people's commune system. Uh, the this, that was the very radical social social political experience launched by by Mao in late 1950s, and. Uh, followed by the followed by uh, just after just after the agricultural co- collectivization campaign in mid nineteen mid nineteen fifties. So I know I mean the people's commune system was implant, implemented uh, since nineteen fifty fifty eight, but uh, it was the quite quite too uh, too radical, and we know this uh, radical social political uh, experiment resulted in a catastrophic. Uh, Great Farming from 1959 to 1961, and after 1961, the government and the party restructured the people's commune people's commune systems uh, from 1962 to 1965. That period, uh, my book uh, discussed. So this restructure, social restructuring, was very significant for for Mao's China, for the transitional period of Mao's China. So this pandemic, this pandemic happened to uh, break out and spread uh, from 1962 to 1965, when the government was launching the uh, radical uh, social political restructuring uh, um, campaign. So that, that the uh, these are the three uh, social political systems in Mao's China. So yeah, and that's part of the background of how. Uh, the government had a, a certain means of controlling the epidemic as well, but yeah. then control measures for the epidemic also contributed to that social restructuring, didn't they? Yes, yes. Um, the, it was a, re- a reciprocal the process. On the one hand, on the one hand, 
the social uh, political restructuring society, uh, social uh, political restructuring campaign contributes to the uh, contributed to the control of the corona pandemic. On the other hand, the measures adopted by the anti-corona campaign contributed to the uh, social political restructuring campaign uh, during the same time. Yes, and the anti-cholera campaign. Um, so I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit here to Chapter 5, uh, mm. because this is about inoculation. Chapter 5 is called A Comprehensive Inoculation, Rural Rhythms, and Compiling Registers. And it, this may also be of interest to people now, because we have a big matter of vaccinating the population yeah. against coronavirus. But the government went to a tremendous amount of trouble to conduct a mass vaccination of a campaign. And, uh, you know, you go into it in a lot of detail. At the end of the chapter, uh, we learned that that campaign was largely unsuccessful in controlling cholera. Uh, You even mentioned, so as the campaign was being carried out, there was evidence within China and internationally as well, the WHO made notice that uh, vaccinating against cholera was not particularly effective. And uh, you even mentioned an epidemiologist at a Ministry of Health symposium in 1963. So this was in the middle of the pandemic. And he stated, the data we collected on the ground provided no evidence that preventive inoculation was effective in preventing cholera. Um, But you state, anyway, and I'm quoting here, uh, the cholera inoculation campaigns in the early 1960s were a significant social and political exercise rather than merely an episode in the medical and public health history of China. Uh, can you explain what the significance of that was then? Uh, okay. Uh, just now I mentioned uh, that the second system, uh, that the, the third system, the people, people's communal system, the people's communal system was, uh, it was implemented, uh, people's communal system was implemented in 1958. By 1961, this system, this uh, this system was uh, collapsed, uh, collapsed, and uh, it resulted in the uh, in the great farming. So around 1961 and 1962, the government government started uh, restructuring the people's communal system. Uh, there were many many uh, many steps and many measures. The first of all, first of all, so the governments intended to control and manage the people's commune system more effectively than before. Then the system implemented in 1958 to 1962. So one of the crucial steps adopted by the party and the governments was to reduce the Reduce the size of the people's commune system. I mean, the, in 19, uh, from 1958 to 1962, the size of the commune system was too big to be managed effectively. So now the governments reduced the size of the people's commune. So, I mean, the, the people's commune system was composed of the uh, pe- uh, commune production brigade and the production teams. So re- reduce the size. That, that was the crucial crucial step. And the second, uh, the government, governments uh, um, uh, redesigned the, the roles, redesigned the roles for the uh, ruler official, the ruler cadres, for the ruler cadres of the production brigades and the production teams. For example, uh, production brigades, the, the party, sec- party secretary and the production brigades uh, uh, directors uh, at the production level, and those uh, production directors and the production teams, um, accountants and the productions uh, uh, work point recorders at the at the production team levels. So all the all the uh, all the cultures have their particular roles and functions within the newly restructured systems. So this step, this second step, contribute to the effective management management of the of the of the rural areas. So that was very significant. And so uh, let's come back to the the uh, the comprehensive inoculation. 
comprehensive inoculation. So as I mentioned in my book, the comprehensive inoculation completely depended on the coordinations between the between the uh, local administrative system and uh, medical systems. So this local administrative system refers to the uh, the, the people or the uh, rural cadres of the production brigade and the production teams uh, production teams. And for the medical systems, medical system refers to the medical professionals, uh, healthcare workers. Uh, these people uh, come from the come from the uh, come many come from the urban areas, and some of them even come from the other prefectures within the same province, and even from the different province. So how to coordinate? How to coordinate this um this um large scale inoculation campaign was very important and it depends on the coordination of the of the two systems but through in my book in my in my book i discuss through uh how, how the how the government how the government uh and how the uh, inoculation campaign contributes the through the through the uh, contribution to the restrictions restructuring uh, social political restructuring, restructuring campaigns. Uh, for example, uh, uh, in the local administrative administrative systems, all the all the uh, production uh, brigade and the production teams at the at the countries participates participated in the in the inoculation campaigns and. Uh, uh, the population data, the population data in the uh, uh, in the household household registration uh, certificate and uh, the worker points uh, the menus were highly uh, and repeatedly verified. So does that make sense? Yes. So, you know, I was really impressed by the tremendous amount of information that was uh, available on everybody and how you know, everybody was documented and inoculation certificates were required. And they they had to do that based on the household registration system, right? Rather yes. than mm. uh, the existing system of, of through the um, production brigades. Yeah. Uh, and there was some resistance to inoculation. Too. There was some considerable resistance. In fact, there were even some physical fights at uh, at checkpoints along the road where people were supposed to present evidence of inoculation. Is that right? Oh uh, yes. Um, that happened. That happened uh, at the, some the quarantine and isolation at the stations. Uh, but uh, it uh, particularly uh, happened among the social political groups with uh, some privileges. Uh, like the soldiers and the government officials and uh, yeah, particularly two groups. And they were the ones who didn't want to get inoculated, right? Uh, the ones with more privilege re- resisted? No, I don't think so. Uh, okay. that, that, um, I, I have not read the archive uh, document concerning the resistance of the inoculation among the government uh, officials and uh, the people libera- people's liberation armies. But uh, uh, some some of the archive document did indicate uh, there was the uh, irregular resistance uh, against the, the quarantine quarantine at the quarantine and isolation stations. Oh, that, that's right. I must have yeah. misremembered. It was the yeah. uh, resistance yeah. against the quarantine. Yeah, because the inoculation inoculation was compulsory. Right. Um, right. And they, and they wanted, in the beginning, they had thought that they needed to inoculate 80% of the population yes. mm. for um, herd immunity. But then later, it, it, believe it, it was 95%, wasn't it? Uh, the much higher, around the 90, uh, 90%. It depends on... Uh, uh, depended on the locations. Yeah. Um, and so uh, along with the inoculation campaign, of course, uh, you have another section on data collection. 
and uh, and stools. In fact, they collected yeah. a lot of data. I mean, this chapter is is labeled stool samples, uh, archiving patients and statistical politics. So uh, there were a lot of stool samples taken because I guess two things in in cholera, mm. there's a lot of diarrhea and and that's where you can detect the disease. So the kind of testing that was done was on stool samples. But um, you also talk a lot about the use of statistics and how it's used epidemiologically, but also how statistics were used politically. Uh, and statistics were tied up on all kinds of non-epidemiological uses, such as uh, showing party loyalty or improving the image of China under communist rule. One thing that really struck me was when you described how the People's Daily, which was the mouthpiece of the party, published only one, only one media report on the entire cholera, cholera pandemic in mainland China from 1961 to 1965. Um, can you talk a little bit about the purpose and the, the effect of that level of media control? Oh, yes, that happened. That happened in 1961 to 1965. Um, it's, it's very, uh, it is very significant and it is also very sensitive. Um, uh, in my book, I discussed the, the why the government, uh, uh, the government and the party controlled the information of the cholera pandemic in early 1960s. So they had a few concerns, like uh, such as the uh, social political images of the socialist country and the party, because the disease, disease like the uh, the cholera plague, was usually associated with the with the the older older society older regime or old uh, the nationalist the, the the parties so the first concern is the social political images of the of the country and, and and the party and the second is the second is the economic concerns i have not uh, discussed uh, discussed discuss it in depth i mean the the social political social economic concern economic concern about the about the information of the uh, the pandemic, and the third is the uh, third is the social social order social order that because um, um, in Imperial China in Imperial China and in Imperial China the collective response to the to the pandemic was usually the the religious ceremony the religious ceremony or just the, the fled from the from the, uh, the the city or or, or the or the, or, or the villages, all these are collective response uh, was believed or described to result in the result in the social disorder social disorder. So that was very very significant for the uh, for for the Chinese government and the parties around the 1961 and the 1962. As I mentioned uh, in that. In these two years, around these two years, the Great Leap Forward just ended, uh, and the, the Great Farming was still lingering. So very sensitive, very sensitive timing for the government and for the party. So that's why the government wanted to control the information during that period. And you also describe varying levels of secrecy that was used to classify information about the pandemic. I mean, I think they had three levels of secrecy. Yes. Uh, but they were all quite secret. Uh, and only certain kinds of information could be divulged to the masses, whereas other kinds of information might be uh, revealed to uh, cadres or other people higher up in the party. And they use something called the five mentions and the five non-mentions. Could you describe what those are? Okay. The five mentions... Uh, the purpose, oh yeah, I, I forgot to mention, uh, uh, answer your question about the the significance of the people's the, the people's daily, the mouthpiece of the uh, the government and the party's publicity this the scheme. Um, yes, the the publicity scheme or the propaganda schemes of the of the of the government and the party was very effective. Was very effective, both because all the information in in the in the in in the in the media's was uh, managed and controlled by by the government and 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 the parties. 
So among all these medias, People's Daily was the most significant one, and they they distribute the they released the released information. For example, during the uh, the pandemic, during the pandemic, there was only one one report concerning the concerning the cholera epidemic in Yangjiang County, Guangdong Province, in 1961, and all the other other medias at the provincial, prefecture, or the county level just followed followed the central media's direction. So that was very significant. And so what's what's your uh, the question? Oh, I was asking you about the five mentions oh, and the five, five non mentions. Okay, five mentions. Yeah, the purpose of the uh, the five yeah governments uh, because the government I, I just now mentioned the governments um, uh, wanted to control the the, the pandem- pandemic information in early nineteen sixties, and uh, there were many many reasons. Uh, one of the one of the concerns. Uh, was the social political image of, images of the of the party and 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 the government? So uh, the 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 party and the government also took the this opportunity to to show the political legitimacy of the of the party and 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 the the government and they for example compare compare the comparing the uh, the measures and the efforts by the nationalist government and and the communist uh, government. So five mentions, five uh, five mentions. Let me take a look. Five mentions. So which page? Should we? Um, oh gosh. Uh, let me take a look. Work. Oh yeah, yeah, I find it. So yes, um, publicity. Uh, he has. Uh, it is on the pages. 215, 216. So publicity campaigns about the Korra follow the principle of five mentions and five non-mentions. In Chinese, we call the Wu Jiang, Wu Bu Jiang. So the five mentions were publicized in high instance, instance rates and the mortality rates in Taiwan. So Taiwan belonged to the Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government in 1960s. And publicizing high fatality rates in Southeast Asian countries such as India, Indonesia, and Hong Kong. And the third is publicizing the fact that all the Chinese government did not care about the people's health health before liberation. And the fourth is uh, uh, publicizing the advantages of the preventive inoculation. And the the fifth is only publicizing information on the infectious intestinal disease in China, while not mention the cholera. The five non-mentions refer to actively uh, to actively not mention the epidemic situation in the country as a whole, in any province, county, or community, or in text posters and other printed materials. So, uh, generally speaking. The principle principle of the five mentions and the five non mentions was to um, justify and show the political legitimacies of the government and and the parties in the nineteen sixties. I wonder because when I read that, uh, and there was another place where you said that that uh, people who had the information were instructed not to. Uh, broadcasted over wireless systems also. Mm. And it did remind me a little bit of the way information about the coronavirus was handled in the United States last year. Mm. Uh, And I wonder, do you see similar efforts to control the flow of information uh, about the current coronavirus pandemic in China? Um, It's a difficult question because I am a historian of the the pandemic in, in Mao's China. Right. Um, I, 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 I do not, I did not find the evidence, um, that the government, uh, intentionally controlled, controlled information. At least it is quite different from, from the response to the, to the SARS in 2000, 2003. I mean, the response to the compare, uh, comparing the response to the SARS, uh, in 2003 and, uh, 
and the coronavirus, uh, the COVID nine, uh, COVID nineteen in uh, twenty twenty, we found that the government's response to uh, to the coronavirus was uh, more uh, more more pro- uh, quickly, more quickly. But the info for the information, um, I think it's quite difficult to answer. Yes, I understand, and I think it's probably difficult to answer for uh, mm. for any country as well. Um, I just, it, I apologize. It's just the kind of thing that came to mind no. uh, because you can't help but think from one pandemic to yeah. another. Um, something I wanted to actually go back because there's something very interesting also about the way the medical system was operating in China because there was a rather complicated, I would say, medical system. At the time, you had the urban doctors, but you also had, um, and you had some urban doctors who were sent to the rural areas because there was at this time a focus on the rural areas. And you also had some uh, traditional Chinese medicine doctors who got involved in the inoculation campaign as well. But, and and I think you mentioned too, that at, at one point in some communes, they actually had decided that medical work was not important because it was more important for people to be doing agricultural work. Oh, yes. So, uh, that, yeah. but, uh, that that happened. That happened before before the outbreak of the cholera pandemic in 1962. Because, uh, uh, yeah, that happened um, in 1961, 1962. The people's commune, the older people's commune system uh, collapsed, and the, the the great farming was still lingering. So the agricultural production was more important, more important than uh, the. Uh, normal or routine uh, epidemic preventions in the views of the some production brigade and production teams uh, cadres, but that happened before before the outbreak of the uh, the pandemic, and it also happens among some uh, in some uh, people's communes to some extent. So it it happened. It happened. Yeah. Yes. And then as far as the, uh, I'll just say, because I have a particular interest in uh, Chinese medicine doctors, mm. uh, traditional Chinese medicine doctors, uh, and and they had some opportunities actually in this pandemic as well. Can you explain what that was? Oh, yes. Uh, they played a very important, very important role uh, in the anti-cholera pandemic in early 1960s. So as we know, uh, the traditional uh, Chinese uh, medical practitioners were the uh, were the were the only available medical professionals in rural areas to great extent in, in nineteen I mean in nineteen in early nineteen sixties there were not uh, that many uh, Western medicine uh, practitioners in rural areas back in nineteen uh, nineteen early nineteen sixties so they were they were mobilized to participate in the anti-cholera uh, the campaign on a large scale, large scale. Uh, on the one hand, they were asked to to assist uh, the medical professionals from the urban areas in terms of inoculation and the preparation of the inoculation certificates and or the filling the uh, inoculation certificates. On the other hand, on the other hand, uh, some uh, Chinese medical practitioners were encouraged to cooperate the, with the Western medicine uh, practitioner to develop the, some recipes uh, for the cholera patients, such as uh, prepare the Chinese medicine uh, decoctions and uh, develop the uh, Chinese acupuncture skills to treat the, the cholera patients. But to, uh, to some extent, these measures, this, I mean the there's a cooperative measures between the Chinese and the Western medical uh, prof- uh, pra- practitioners was uh, not as uh, was not um, effective as expected. I mean, the, the government encouraged them to cooperate to develop the uh, Chinese uh, Chinese medicine treatment methods and uh, acupuncture the, the skills. But these measures was not so effective as the government expected. And these, but, but these measures were still, were still used after the conditions of the 
uh, cholera patients were stable, I mean, they're stabilized. To help them improve it, I think you mentioned, uh, you wrote about how it was difficult because the two main approaches that the traditional Chinese medicine doctors would take was giving herbal formulas yeah. and uh, made from herbs, and sometimes those don't taste very good, and they can even upset the stomach. And the other was using acupuncture. As you said, it was hard for them to keep the herbal decoction down. Sometimes they would vomit it back up, and the acupuncture was just hard to do on people who were uh, in poor shape. Yeah. 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 So uh, that was interesting. Um, oh, I know what else I wanted to ask you about, uh, because this particular pandemic that you focus on lasted until 1965, but then there were other cholera epidemics that broke out at various times in China since then. And what, what was the approach after that? Um, because you mentioned a little bit, the WHO, at, at, I think it was in 1978, was it, that yeah. they decided that inoculation wasn't the best way forward? Mm. Yes. Um that's a good, good, good questions. Yeah, I focused on the cholera in 1961 to 1965. Uh, from 19, in my book, I also mentioned uh, from 1965 to 1977, there were not uh, so many cholera cases. But after 1978, they were the cholera, cholera, uh, the broke, uh, broke out, broke out again in some, uh, some areas of the coast, the southeast coast. Uh, Part of China, um, the government uh, still so from 1967, uh, seven, uh, from 1978 to nine, early 1980s, uh, the government still used uh, the traditional interventionist uh, prevention methods such as inoculation, inoculation, uh, quarantine, and and isolations. But after the early 1980s. Uh, the governments uh, did not adopt, uh, did not adopt these uh, traditional traditional measures, because for 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 the government for the medical systems it was um, uh, relatively easier relatively easier to 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 uh, to manage the uh, outbreak of the the cholera pandemic uh, than before. I mean, relatively easier. For example, the supplies of the uh, supply of the, the the medicine for treating the the cholera pandemic for the the managing the isolation of the infected cholera patients it was relatively easy it it was not a problem for the government and for the for the medical system yeah something that we didn't really cover before was how very isolated some areas were that mm. um, were in mountainous regions and the people who were going to help them came from the urban areas and had never had experience walking through dark mountain roads at night, mm. as you said. Oh yeah. So yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in Mao's China is in Mao's China. It was easier to to control and monitor the population mobility from rural areas to to urban areas, and it correspondingly uh, contributed to the effective effective uh, uh, monitoring of the the cholera patients. But after nineteen seventy seventy eight. Um, uh, it will be uh, more difficult to to control the population mobilities, but uh, it was uh, technically uh, it was not a problem for the governments and the medical system to to identify the the cholera patients. Yes, another thing that struck me reading this book was how very much data was collected, uh, meticulously collected, hmm. and how much difficult, how much more difficult that would have been in the early nineteen sixties. In the mid 1960s than it is today. Ah uh, yes, it's um, uh, it's a good questions. Yeah, uh, the statistics, statistic politics, uh, is a part of this uh part of this uh that is this book, uh, the key themes. Mm, um, the government, yes, government did the made uh, did make a great effort to establish the uh, both the uh, administrative system and uh, medical system to collect to collect the, the data i mean the, this data uh, including the uh, household uh, social social political data such as household registrations and they also refer to the uh, economic data such as uh, uh, 
the workpoint menus held by the people's commune. It also referred to the epidemiological data, such as the data concerning the various uh, disease and infection disease among the, among the Chinese population. It was very significant, very significant to establish and implement this uh, data collection system. Yes, and as you say, that had um, a significant effect on the restructuring of society through through having that information. Mm. Yes, yeah, different type, different types of the uh, data uh, integrates, and they were uh, they are uh, um, repeatedly, repeatedly uh, verified. I mean, the, this data will check the that accuracy of this data of this data was uh, was checked by the different other types of the data. Yes, it seems like a tremendous effort. Um, yes. Well, Xiaoping, we've taken up a lot of your time. Yeah, um, but before we go, I wanted to ask you one last question, which is what are you working on now? Well, um, I'm still thinking which, uh, which topic I will be working on. I want to take a break and uh, write, write a few, few articles. Before I find uh, before I find an ideal topic, uh, book uh, book a project topic. Well, this one took many years, uh, as you said. Oh yeah, so uh, I started working on this project in uh, twenty eleven and uh, completed last year, so around ten years. So yeah, so cautious. I can see. Yeah. <laughs> should be cautious with the topic of the the book project. That's right. <laughs> I take time to identify and discuss the, with my colleagues and friends and seek their suggestion which topic which topic will be of interest to you. So and then I I should start to working on the uh, the new uh, new project book project. Yes, if you're going to devote the next ten years of your life to it, you, you want to be <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, well. Xiaoping, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I learned so much from reading this book, and I would uh, say to anyone who's interested in epidemics or the social structure of China during this period of Mao's restructuring, uh, the book is what people refer to as a granular reporting. It just goes into a great level of detail that is just magnificent to understand exactly um, how things are taking place on all these different levels, and I, you know, I feel like I've I've looked at this area of China with a, a microscope and been able to see it so much more clearly during this particular period. So, uh, an impressive work, and it's it really has been a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, thank you. It's my great pleasure. Thank you for your time.